0: Kia ora, and welcome back to episode two of this Coalesce Produced podcast, PhD Unpacked.
1: We might need to think more humanely about how we're responding to drug users and, as I just said, labelling people in relation to other forms of criminality across their life. What might be a more humane way of dealing with things? What might be a way that might assist with these people feeling more socially included for the duration of their life?
0: A podcast where we unpack a phd thesis over the course of 30 minutes my name is kimberly and i'll be the narrator for this series while james was in the room with the interviewees i'll be here with you making sure you don't miss anything during these discussions about really impactful and powerful research whenever you hear the podcast beats You'll hear me come in and help to unpack a particularly complex idea or even clarify something for a bit more understanding and context. In the previous episode, we spoke to Dr. Leanna MacDonald and explored how colonisation has impacted Aotearoa's education system. Today, we're joined by Dr. John Dance to discuss his thesis, Narratives of Stopping, Starting and Using Methamphetamine. John currently works at Universities New Zealand as a pastoral care manager, overseeing pastoral care support in universities across Aotearoa. As with everything, the why is central to our understanding. So we start this corridor with James and John talking about why he chose to do this particular PhD.
2: Before we get into the research, can you tell us briefly how and why you
1: ended up writing this PhD specifically? Yeah, I mean, PhDs you know they're quite a personal journey aren't they and i think anyone can do a phd not unlike running a marathon if you if you're interested in running a marathon then this is what a phd is it's sort of an intellectual marathon of sorts so there was that as a component of it i wanted to see whether i could do it uh, i did want to be called dr dance i have said this uh, it has a fantastic ring to it of course i can't save lives and i'm not very good at maths but nonetheless i thought it was pretty cool but more broadly i really was interested in the way that we talk about drugs and drug use and the people who use drugs and I grew up in a household uh, my dad was a fairly senior police officer um, and I found myself one day confronted by him in handcuffs (laughs) having been arrested for drug use and was uh, processed through the courts and had that exper- first hand experience of what it means to be labeled by the state as a drug user. So deep within me, this experience kind of informed, I think, my desire to look at this and reflect on my own experience, which I'll circle back to in the course of this discussion.
2: Narratives of starting, using, and stopping methamphetamine use. Mm. This is a work that builds fundamentally on the narratives of individual participants, sort of reflecting on a larger experience. Could you move into methodology and tell us a little bit about how you went about the research in your PhD, the the process, and uh, to quote from your PhD, a narrative approach to collate, interpret, and thematically analyze stories. And this idea of sort of naturalistic interpretive domain of people's experiences—can you touch on your methodology for the work?
1: Yeah, and that actually makes my methodology sound amazing, doesn't it? The way that you yeah uh, I mean framed we're a big there. fan. Uh, I I can absolutely see you uh, lecturing at some point in the future. Well done. Uh, I guess fundamental to human experience is the telling of stories, right? So you want to hear people's stories and 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 learn from those stories. Of course, when we hear stories in a research context, then we are motivated to think about what kind of methodology or what kind of research instrument we're going to use to unpack them and understand them. So at a base level, I knew I was interested in stories generally. I like literature that crafted human experience through storytelling. And a lot of what could be broadly labeled as cultural criminology does that. And I understood it as a methodology as well because so much of research relies on precision and debates around, oh, well, is this accurate, is this measurable, as you would see and expect in a quantitative context, right, because there's actual data and we're counting numbers and what does that mean. But as I said earlier, I'm not very good at math, so I was never going to be able to do something like that. But I understood language and I understood stories and... A narrative analysis allows us to present stories in a thematic way, but we're not saying that we've, we've captured perfection or some accurate representation of reality. We're capturing stories and conversations that contribute to a bigger conversation. Here are some stories. Tell me what you think about them. How does it inform your thinking about a particular topic? This is what's at the core of narrative analysis. That made sense to me. Could you tell us a little bit about the,
2: the history of methamphetamine in New Zealand? Um, because from your research, you've come to learn that we have a bit of a, a unique set of circumstances regarding methamphetamine, everything from our sort of geographical location, a sort of small market size, about the, the Mr. Asia syndicate. And what do we need to know to contextualize the use of methamphetamine in New Zealand in sort of the last 20, 30 years and, and that
1: base understanding of knowledge to, to frame research we have of course here in New Zealand the tyranny of distance we are far away from major drug producing nations and like so many things that I mean I'm using a cultural trope here we are sort of quite self-sustaining and good at figuring out things ourselves so when we look at our drug history we can see that and this is a really good example of it one of the first early drug laws was against potentiating uh, the use of cannabis by putting it in alcohol and this was around the turn of the century so this is late 1800s i thought to myself oh yeah that's fairly typical kiwis you know they've got they've got some cannabis here i don't know how they got their hands on it back in the day but they've decided to mix it with a pint to see whether it does more They've figured out already, right, let's see if we can game this with what we've got, because we haven't got really any cocaine or ecstasy at this point in time, so we'll see if we can get some leverage off this. I make jest there, but there are other examples. Uh, The production of homebake, which is the extraction of, it's the manufacture of um, heroin, or a form of heroin, I guess, by extracting the codeine out of medication. And that came from a chemist's recipe that was in a textbook in the Auckland University Library. And it was unique to New Zealand that people right. had figured out how to do this. So we had this kind of environment for figuring out our use of drugs because we couldn't get the real deal, right? Oh, well, we'll figure out some angle to do it. And that kind of set an overall scene when we had this idea of manufacturing methamphetamine. It was like, oh, great well we haven't got cocaine and all of these glorious things that we might see in the media here but we could manufacture this ourselves, sounds good, we're great at making stuff, let's give it a go. So that's kind of the backdrop to New Zealand in terms of its do-it-yourself drug environment and I'm going to circle back to that manufacturing of methamphetamine later on in this uh, conversation. But then we also have this other really unique environment where We've got a lot of unusual substances that are a big deal in New Zealand, but not necessarily a big deal somewhere else. So an example would be late 90s, very early 2000s, BZP and other synthetic, well synthetic is the wrong word, analogs of amphetamines that were used in generic, what were labelled at the time party pills, that you could buy... um, you know, in somewhere like Cosmic Corner down there, those kind of things. Uh, Because, again, you couldn't get all of these, you know, higher-level stimulants that you could get in the US or anywhere else. It was like, oh, well, we've got this budget version here in New Zealand, you know. We have the budget version of everything here, but we had budget version of drugs. So this was a really big deal here, this particular substance. But you would never find anyone using this in Australia or the US or somewhere else because they had all of these glorious drugs. I'm going to say, you know, you're, you're... Your standalone favourite, so let's think of that as ecstasy, cocaine, morphine, heroin, all of these kind of go-to things that have been around for years. We haven't really got those here in abundance. Um, So we've got this kind of history of these weird things that we're really into, many of which are worse for you than the actual glamour drugs are. Uh, Not that any drug is, is safe, I'm not in any way advocating that. And this kind of DIY approach to drug use. That's kind of the landscape of where mm. we're at. Yeah. And when you were beginning this research in mm. the sort of early mid
2: 2010s, there was, I guess, a pretty strong methamphetamine narrative, right? The media was speaking about it a lot. It was very much a focal point. And at that time there was, and I, I guess you could probably argue still is, the sort of per- pervasive drug narrative about the kinds of people who took drugs and the people who were doing meth and these sort of character tropes, reinforcing the idea that, problematic drug users represent a sort of distinct class or category of of people. Can you tell us about this idea of sort of conflating identities and that pervasive narrative at the time that was so strongly presented in popular media and what methamphetamine was and what people thought of it and the people who were using methamphetamine knowing that later on we'll, we'll talk about how your research sort of tries
1: to flip the lens on that Idea on those mm. uh, those thoughts. Yeah, well, you bang on the money there. That that decade, particularly a little bit of overhang late two thousands and yeah into the two thousand and tens, there was manic focus on methamphetamine, really spurred on by a lot of high profile incidents. Uh, one involving uh, a gentleman who was intoxicated. Uh, having with methamphetamine and had hacked off body limbs off uh, i think it was his partner and one of his friends with a samurai sword and this became a kind of moniker for well see this is what meth does you'll break out your bayonet and start chopping people up and there was another high profile case in the Upper where A man murdered a young girl, Coral Burrows. I think I've got that correct. And again, that was portrayed as a meth-related extreme violent incident. So we had these very particular examples of extreme violence associated with the methamphetamine use. And inarguably, there was a lot of methamphetamine use. I'm not saying that there wasn't. But as we'll get into later on, this was sort of confined in particular areas and particular populations for different reasons. But there was this kind of view, like any of the historical drug panics, which is well worn theoretical territory. You know, there's been many of them drug panics around cannabis use or heroin use, or earlier drug panics around speed use that somehow the whole nation's moral fabric was completely being unravelled by this reality and and it necessitated an extremely punitive response. And what we saw in 2010s was really elevated law enforcement, increasingly punitive responses to drug use, uh, some outlandish public and political commentary around drug use, Uh, and explanations for it. We got to see the proliferation of drug testing agencies and people tasked with going into landlords' properties to test for methamphetamine contamination and all of these kind of things. So we had all of this big bundle of stuff floating around that really gave people the impression that this was the worst substance that you could possibly ingest. And it's unlike any other drug because... There's nothing really positive associated with methamphetamine. Uh, What I mean by that is there's degrees of positivity that you can associate with other drugs. You know, there's a lot of positivity that you could associate with cannabis use, for example. Of course you could with alcohol use. There's a glamour component to using uh, cocaine. Uh, There's a festival joy and, you know, uh, monstering a lot of molly (laughs) for whatever reason you might want to, you know ecstasy so that's perfectly acceptable too we had a kind of heroin chic kind of hey it's cool to use heroin kind of thing through the 90s so pretty much all other drugs have enjoyed some notoriety but with some kind of street level coolness at the same time there's nothing cool about methamphetamine nothing at all Uh, it's really viewed as the most abhorrent substance of all and that was central to all discourses about drug use. It effectively conflated any conversation around drug use. as oh, hey, everyone's like this. This is what it is. And at the apex of all of these shady humans, the methamphetamine users are the worst. And I guess that idea that there's nothing justifiable
2: or positive about methamphetamine leads to this this idea, this popular opinion in the media and the criminal justice system that methamphetamine use in that specific drug addiction is can only be the result of poor individual lifestyle choices this idea that to go down this particular path could only be the result of an individual making terrible decision making and the power of individual agency and i guess this is an idea that's sort of at the core of your your research right the challenging that idea questioning how important is individual agency and do we need to consider context everything else that surrounds it environmental forces your background how you grew up all these other ideas that came out of of your research asking Mm. people about their stories and questioning how much of this is about individual agency and how much of it is
1: about something more something different a really good example might be people who need government support and they've got a benefit of some kind they've got social support of some kind right but then the absolute demonizing of those people who take that money as though they're doing it by some kind of lifestyle choice why are you choosing to do this why can't you make these other choices like I did and pull yourself up from the bootstraps and make good Um, and then that kind of neatly links into conversations about how do you stop people using drugs who are on benefits will take their benefits of them this kind of lumping together that people are making these choices that you and I might not make but they're immediately negative and somehow some kind of human failure um, and, and beneficiaries are, are subject to that reality and drug use is very much subject to that reality so yes it is about context because as with anything once we understand somebody's context then we can go right okay well now I can see why you're making the decision that you're making Uh, And now I can think about some healthy things I could do to help you improve your situation rather than judging you and demonizing you and marginalizing you further.
0: So John and James have discussed the overview of drug use in New Zealand, which gives us a really good understanding of the landscape. At this point in the interview, James turned the conversation to the bulk of John's thesis, unpacking first-hand narratives of starting, using and stopping methamphetamine. While discussing the social forces that surround these experiences, John explains three different levels of impacts, micro, meso, and macro. And I'll go through each of those just to give you a bit of context. The micro level is all about the personal relationships between individual people. The meso level refers to specific groups and communities. And the macro level is all about broader systemic change. This includes things like historical and national context and the government policies that impact people's lives.
1: At the core of this for a layperson would be, well, why do people even use methamphetamine? And perhaps they'll immediately go to some common kind of tropes like, well, they must be doing it to escape reality or they're very damaged people and they need this to cope with life or um, they're only doing it because they want to lose weight or some ridiculous kind of popular culture narrative as to why they might be. I can't, I can't think of many off the top of my head, but they're not positive, right? But when we start looking at context and we start thinking about drug use in terms of stories, well, then we can see how people started this whole drug use journey. And this, for me, was probably one of the most important things in this research, right? Mm-hmm. That people's drug-using journeys, if they are defined as a problematic drug user, and that's a problem with my research, it disproportionately focuses on problematic drug Drug users. So what I mean by that is someone who might have experienced stereotypical understandings of addiction and engaged in some criminal behaviours because of their addiction. Their drug use is problematic. I make that distinction because there are some people who can use methamphetamine and have no problems. So we can look at them as a drug user who's not necessarily defined as being problematic. So there's that distinction. But when we look at people who end up in this kind of domain of problematic drug use, actually these people's lives around drugs started 10, 11, 12, they started using drugs. Invariably, the first drug of choice was alcohol, often. So you could say, well, this must be the most evil substance of all, because look at where it leads to for some people. But we don't really think about alcohol as a I hate the expression as a gateway drug that's a very flawed kind of way of understanding drug use Um, but for these people for, for many of them that was the thing that actually propelled them forwards on this journey of drug use sequential thinking about it from alcohol we had people go to cannabis from cannabis we had people use Uh, drugs they'd found in their parents' medical cabinets uh, drugs that they'd been prescribed for injuries Uh, as they moved through that sequence of events people accidentally discovered drugs by meeting a particular person in a particular time who happened to have substance X or substance Y Uh, family members that they met later on in their lives who had substance X or substance Y generally for these people they would have been something in the order of 10 to 20 different drug types before we got to methamphetamine use. So then we can see in our sequence of uh, storying your drug use, well, hang on a minute, methamphetamine really wasn't the substance that set them into a lifetime of problematic drug use. That occurred many, many years ago. I'm not in any way downplaying how negative methamphetamine use is here because certainly by the time they arrived, To the substance, meth absolutely sped everything up at a rate of knots and caused significant harm. But in and of itself, that wasn't the substance that got them to where they were. They were on that journey a long time ago. So that idea of starting drug use was really core to this. And then more broadly, well, what do we think about? Well, how do we label drug users if we have to for research research? clearly my sample were individuals who were polydrug drug users and polydrug use is pretty normal amongst drug users generally you know you might go to a festival and you might have some ecstasy but then you might have something else that you have before maybe you have something else afterwards to come down with in the afternoon and in the evening or whatever you're doing right so it's a fairly normal kind of approach to drug use so that becomes very difficult to label this group of people as methamphetamine use, users when, in fact, they've got all of these other things going on in their lives. And all of that's discounted in policy. We're not even having conversations around that. How'd you get there to begin with? That's a useful starting point. And, of course, every alcohol and drug clinician knows this already. Uh, their, their insights would have been really useful in policy making, I imagine. Then we get to using, of course, and that's where things get really interesting and I link using to the idea of risk environments because then we're going, okay, so when you got to using methamphetamine, how did you navigate the risk around using this particular substance? Because I was interested in that. How could you engage in something that's been so stigmatized and vilified and publicly rejected, even by some smaller drug-using communities? How could you get to that space? And that's where we get to this idea of risk environments, which are theorised by Rhodes, uh, who'd done a lot of scholarship around HIV transmission and needle use. For example, at a micro level, so we're thinking about personal relationships, those intravenous drug users would consider sharing needles with an intimate partner as something quite normal, because they're your partner, even though you're sharing blood by virtue of using these syringes, right? Sounds horrendous. Uh, But that's perfectly normal in the context of an intimate relationship when you're a problematic drug user. Then at a, a meso level, so then we're talking about sort of community and social setting level, that risk is further amplified because you could look at a variable like gender and go gender also exacerbates the likelihood that intravenous drug users may take risks because gender can be used as a form of transaction in the nature of power where women might feel they have to navigate power by exchanging sex for drugs and putting themselves in risky environments where they engage in intravenous drug use which doesn't keep them safe. This is not to argue that women see themselves as victims or as having no power in that context, they're navigating that at a miso level because of gendered realities. I hope that makes sense. And then at a broader political level, we have risks where perhaps you're operating in an environment where there are no needle exchanges. Perhaps you're operating in an environment where you have a severe level of uh, punishment around intravenous drug use. Fortunately, in New Zealand, and this is one positive shout-out for drug policy here at the moment, we do have needle exchanges, which is fantastic. Weirdly, you can exchange needles uh, as an intravenous drug user. That's okay. But if you've got methamphetamine use in tensils, then you will be severely punished and possibly fined, even in prison, potentially. So there's a contradiction there. But that was Rhodes's. Theoretical lens, okay, we've got all of these factors, things that are happening at a political, legal level, things that are happening at a social level, the social context, gender relations, environmental factors, family dynamics, and then what's happening at an individual level and intimate relationships between people. All of these factors affect how you make decisions about drug use, and really by extension, how you make decisions about anything in your life, probably, you could apply this to anything. And so I applied that particular model to the stories that users had told me and I could see the confluence of these variables and go oh okay well I see why you did what you did that makes perfect sense to me hopefully that makes sense to you.
0: So it seems to really come down to this idea of risk and how we understand it. Conceptualising and analysing risk is a crucial element of John's research, and it's worth emphasising because risk is something that every single human being navigates on a daily basis. Whether it's jaywalking across an intersection or not washing our hands properly, processing risk is something that we all do far more often than we realise. But assessing risk and evaluating other people's risky behaviours is complicated, as John explains.
1: In simple terms risk doesn't occur at an individual level, it occurs in a social context. How we approach money is an example, right, risk is something that we navigate perhaps by getting advice from family members, the way that we're brought up, the particular communities we inhabit, the work we might be doing, all of these, the sum of all of these human experiences will, will help us navigate risk around money. And so too, that logic applies to drug use. The sum of all of these experiences helped these people navigate and understand risk as it related to drug use. This is what I really wanted to know. So when we're looking at the drug using journeys as an example, they would have engaged in really, really risky forms of drug use that were far more dangerous and damaging than methamphetamine could be. For example, a lot of users that I uh, drug users that I had interviewed spoke to how intoxicating and how profoundly negative the impact of synthetic cannabis was. This was common to everybody who talked about it. Just how overwhelming and. Um, damaging they felt that was to them in terms of their psychology and their functioning. So for them, comparatively, meth seemed a lot safer. They're like, oh, okay, yeah, this isn't really messing with my head quite as much. I'm able to do a lot more. I'm not lying down on the couch unable to comprehend reality. I can actually go to work. I can look after the kids. I can drive the car. I can get a lot of stuff done. I can manage my life while I use meth. So, these kind of risk experiences were shared with other people because they build up this library of risk knowledge. And so, collectively, people understand this. They'll like go, oh, mate, you know, synthetic cannabis, that's way more full on than methamphetamine. Yeah, you're right. Yep. So, this is how they understand approaches to risk. Another example might be thinking about uh, a meso-level example that was cited by a lot of women. The risks associated with involvement in gangs and involvement in sex work were far more onerous and worrisome than the risks associated with methamphetamine use in and of itself. Of course there are health risks and risks associated with potentially becoming a methamphetamine addict, I don't like using that term, becoming a long-term problematic methamphetamine user. But there were much greater risks associated with being abused by partners involved in uh, sex work, uh, obligations to gangs around money. Uh, One woman who produced meth talked about being kidnapped and put in boot of cars to make more meth Um, those obligations were far more risky and and difficult to navigate than meth use in and of itself. So this idea of what's risky and what isn't is completely different for this set of human beings. So then you start to understand the rationalisations around using methamphetamine use. But that was a, a eureka moment of sorts. You're like, yeah, I can understand how your thinking works. and why you've made the decisions that you do. Because the social realities of problematic drug users uh, and and people who might occupy a space where they're subject to profound social disadvantage and victimisation and exclusion and racism, those spaces are very difficult to understand if you're a stock standard parking car guy like me with privilege. It's mind-blowing, you can't even begin to wrap your head around it, how full-on it is. But you do understand how meth is just one very small component of an incredibly complex world. I'm back!
2: Did you miss me? Well, regardless, I'm going to be here for all seven episodes unless you sign up to the PhD Unpacked Patreon. See, Patreon allows you, the listener, to support the team at PhD Unpacked. We've been doing this project off our own backs with no external financial support for the past two years, but I tell you, we have big dreams. Look, we get it. There is going to be a Wellington bias with the authors, so we want to travel around the country, around the region, to listen to other incredible researchers and learn about their work. So if you're wanting to help, that's patreon.com slash That's patreon.com slash PhD All information in the bio, but for now... I'll leave you back to the episode. But let's move on to these, onto the pathways of desistance, the part mm. of your research that focuses on stopping. the stories of stopping methamphetamine yeah. use. How did those narratives compare to the stories of, of starting and, and using? Were there lots of similarities with the people you spoke to? Were there wild differences? That kind of third key word of, of stopping.
1: Well, stopping was a really interesting part of this research because central to the the negative tropes and stigmatization associated with methamphetamine is the idea that a methamphetamine user has no agency whatsoever over their decision-making, that somehow this particular substance has corrupted them in every way imaginable. And you 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 got to see this in uh, a lot of articles would have like these brain maps and they'd have like, here is a healthy brain. And then they'd have this other picture and like, here's the brain of a methamphetamine user, you know, and it would look like a, fried egg or something you know i don't know i don't know anything about neuroscience but it didn't look great but it just conveyed this idea that somehow these individuals had no cognitive where for all to do anything or make meaningful decisions because they were so overtaken by by this particular psychotropic substance Well when we look at the reasoning behind why they stopped or how they came to stop Actually, people exercised a profound degree of agency. And for many of the people that I interviewed, made conscious decisions to stop. I mean, I'm going to stop. They experienced really negative life events, which has been sometimes labelled as uh, in uh, alcohol and drug clinician language. I think it's accurate to say that as uh rock bottom right hitting rock bottom we've all heard of that uh why we wait for people to hit rock bottom before we do anything's an interesting concept which we'll get back to in a moment but it wasn't necessarily that people had hit rock bottom it was that people had experienced something that they never wanted to encounter again loss of life loss of health exposure to extreme violence uh, and they decided to take themselves out of this context and that meant stopping using methamphetamine. So they were able to exercise agency. So this idea that we've got this unstoppable drug-using population is flawed. Well, that just isn't the case. This isn't to say that these people didn't need help or didn't need resources to maintain that decision. The point is they made that decision themselves and they sought out help themselves. They did exercise agency over their lives. And considering how absolutely brutally socially excluded many of these people were, it was amazing that they were able to do so. It really was. Um, That's the point that really comes through, I think, in those desistance narratives. um, And also the idea that we're not in a fixed state as a problematic drug user this idea of disengaging from the self-identity as a problematic drug user and stopping and becoming something else becoming this different person with these different components in your identity this is what was really interesting in that desistance narratives and for me it was like well these are the things that we want to convey because i'm not of the mind of the popular understanding that people are addicts forever That they assume this label for the rest of their life I, I don't necessarily subscribe to that view this isn't to say that i'm saying that people can return to drug use and somehow manage it later on in life i'm just saying they're not this uncontrollable personality forever you know that's just flawed thinking in my view and something really quite
2: Beautiful I find it and powerful in your research in this this chapter about that idea of sort of Identity transformation and renewal and Mm. and discovering a new sense of self. I guess language that if you put it through a different context many many people would buy into Mm. these ideas Uh, But through this particular lens of problematic drug use I think that idea of of identity transformation and renewing a new sense of self it is it, what a difficult thing to go through, and to be able to to go through that change is is an amazing thing. To hear those stories of of people who have stopped the methamphetamine use, I, f- I found that part of your research just actually quite beautiful and powerful.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for that feedback. I really appreciate it. Uh, it was really a meaningful component of it for me as well. I. Was really interested in a lot of the language around that kind of journey, um, how they how they understood themselves as they took on different identities and moved away from what they what they saw themselves previously. For some of them, I, I emphasised the problematic nature of some of the the structures that we put around drug users, and I'm not an, uh, don't want to take away anything from the enormously hardworking alcohol and drug clinicians in this country, but some of the tools they might use inadvertently label people as addicts for life because you can go into treatment and go, oh, I'm a recovering addict. This is what I am. So you're given this new uh not science based, but a social science based, state based label now of your reality. Oh, this is what you are. You're a recovering addict. Well, when have I finished recovering? Is there a date that I arrive at where I'm no longer recovering and I'm no longer an addict? Do you mind telling me when that is? Do I get a certificate? Is it a phone call from the Queen? I don't know. Um, Because for some of these people, they just assume that's what their new label was forever. And that was actually, well, that was better than being a problematic drug user, I guess, and having to live the life that they had. But it was sad thinking that they had to permanently think about themselves in relation to their drug-using experiences So I think there were some learnings from this particular component of my thesis around how we might approach conversations with drug users as they recover. I'm using the word recover. But as they move into a different phase of life that doesn't have drugs as something that they value or that's being important, what kind of language might we use? And you'll notice that I've used problematic drug user as often as I can. I think that's a much more positive turn of phrase. But for some of those people I don't, I don't think they can successfully navigate away from that largely because now the state has responded to their drug use and their, their exposure to the state and its systems by policing, by Oranga Tamariki and taking children away or whatever it might have been has labelled them perhaps with official labels because you've got a criminal record for drug use. So you're labelled by the state forever as being this, this drug user. And, and that harks right back to what I said at the very beginning of this interview, having experienced that label myself. You've got it forever. Even though there's clean slate legislation that says, oh, hey, you know, I don't need to tick the, the yes box for criminal conviction. You've still got the conviction. It still turns up when you've got to make insurance claims. You've got the conviction forever if you're applying for a visa to go overseas. The state says you have this label for life. That's it. Until you die, that's on our record. You can't escape it. And you and I have talked about this previously in the lead up to this. This is one of the things that I'm really interested in and hope that my research contributes to is challenging why we treat drug users the way that we do with incredibly punitive responses when we know They're probably not willfully engaging in drug use because of all of this other complex stuff, risk and risk environments. And of what use is it to us as human beings in this community to have other human beings that have these deviant negative labels for life? I'm not quite sure how that's beneficial. I don't think it's beneficial to me or beneficial to the world that I live in. So I'm interested in challenging that. I have a, a a drug use label forever. You can go and find it in the court record if you want. Uh, I can tick the no box. You know, I was a teenager when it occurred, but I still got the conviction. Two hundred hours community service, uh, and it really annoys me having to talk about it when I visit some countries. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh my gosh, when does this end? Uh, you know, maybe I made my bed and I lied in it, but I don't want that for anyone else which goes to a bigger topic about labels and criminality generally.
0: For anyone listening to PhD Unpacked for the first time, what we usually do in these discussions is end on this final question, where is the hope? So when we think about this research, what can we expect in the future? As we unpack these ideas, the data and the discussion, how can we make change? In the case of John's research, what could we do at different levels? For example how can we change the language we use to describe people and their experiences or what can be done at a policy level to create positive and wide-reaching change
1: well i think we're occupying a really interesting point in time now aren't we where we're asking so many questions about how we, we judge other human beings for example in in contemporary discourses around gender identity and the absolute brutal judgment that people have experienced you know as being gender diverse and now we're really questioning that judgment and structuring conversations and resources and services in a way that they should be right we took a while to get the memo but we got there that's a really good example to me of challenging judgments and unpacking them and and thinking uh, about different ways of being human and looking after other people so perhaps as we enter this particular social point in time, the same logic might be used to apply to drug users uh, and to people who engage in other kinds of criminality. There are some kinds of criminality that uh, require labelling and control and risk, Um, and I wouldn't want to detract from the experiences of victims who might be listening now, I, I understand that. But we might need to think more humanely about how we're responding to drug users and labelling people and, as I just said, labelling people in relation to other forms of criminality across their life, what might be a more humane way of dealing with things? What might be a way that might assist with these people feeling more socially included for the duration of their life? What might be more useful forms of language to describe what people have experienced rather than using negative you know fairly typical drug user language that's popular in our lexicon at the moment those are things i think that we can do at a, at a social level by changing up the conversation a little bit more then at a policy level because that you know to go back to rhodes example you know in the macro environment uh there's a lot of work that we can do there and again you and i talked about this previously right um, it's, it's not that often that we can look at the US <laughs> around drug use and go, wow, you guys are doing a better job in a criminal justice system sense at the moment with things because normally we're pointing to profoundly negative things that are going on in the US. But I'm a big fan of Biden's approach to wiping criminal records for uh, drug offending. I don't know the specifics of it. I'm not an expert on it. I only know the basic... Of what's been reported on Um, but if I've understood it correctly that seems to me to be a really good way of doing things and that goes to a bigger conversation right when do we wipe criminal convictions and what kind of convictions might we get rid of when do you arrive at a point when you're no longer a criminal when do you arrive at a point when you've actually paid whatever debt it is you needed to pay to society when do you move beyond that Because lifetime, to me, seems a little bit extreme, in my view, for a great many things. So it's great that the US are leading in that space. There's a lot we can learn for policies in our own country around decriminalizing some forms of drug use. I'm very pro the idea of decriminalizing drug use and looking at different kinds of ways of responding to it. It's easy for me to make this observation from the sidelines. I'm not at the coalface, so I may not understand fully what that means. uh, And I don't want to detract from the expertise that others have in this field. But that seems to me to be something that we need to look at. We have plenty of overseas evidence to tell us what the likely outcome of doing it is. My only observation would be with that would be some degree of caution because stereotypically communities who can least afford to manage excessive drug use are typically the ones who bear the burden of problematic drug use. Stereotypically they are. So I'm wondering whether any liberalization of drug laws might have the unintended consequence of really impacting uh, people who are experiencing extreme social disadvantage. Um, I'm not a policy analyst, and I'm certainly, again, no good at maths, I haven't got the data to predict there, but I would be interested to know what that looks like. But yeah, fundamentally, we need to have conversations, right? The hows and whys. Why is this? Why do we do things this way? I don't know.
0: A big thank you to John for coming on to PhD Unpacked and having a chat with us about his research. If you're looking to learn more, you can have a read of John's PhD, which can be found in the bio for this episode. On the next episode of PhD Unpacked, we talk to Dr. Natalie Slade about her PhD, Deconstructing Refugeeness, exploring mediated discourses of solidarity, welcome, and refugee self-representation in New Zealand. Because we
2: shape our understanding of the other in these terms, when we actually come maybe face-to-face with the other, you know, in terms of, say, refugee resettlement, we can't see beyond that helpless suffering victim. So if somebody has got an iPhone or is dressed really well, or, you know, they can't be a refugee because refugees are only, you know, destitute, helpless, poor.
0: To keep up with the various podcasts and projects that Coalesce are producing, head to at NZ on Instagram. And for more from us, it's at PHD Unpacked on Instagram. Before I go, big love to Wellington Access Radio for the interview spot. Thank you for listening. Ma te wa.